Namaste, viewers. Welcome to Jaipur Dialogue and Jaipur Dialogue USA for a very interesting session on the toolkit operators. We all know that uh, you know the toolkit operation went into action way back in 2020, but perhaps it has been operating for a longer while because we begin to see things happen. What was interesting and what we do find interesting is the fact that the toolkit is operating globally. It's not only India, but globally. And 2024 is going to be a very critical year for the world because three prominent democracies will go into election mode. One is the United States itself, where I live. And the second one is India, where the election is hugely anticipated. And third could be UK, where Rishi Sunak is the prime minister. and. Uh, Boris Johnson was elected in 2019, and that election also would be coming. So three prominent democracies will go for elections. And the toolkit operators of left-wing, leftist, and all those people who are there are working day and night. And that is now visible. The game is in the open. It's no longer secret. There is nothing behind the screen. It's all being played out. So I have two brilliant minds today, uh, remarkably active in the world of politics and geopolitics and think tank approach. Major General Dhruv Kotech, who is known around the country, he has been on all kinds of television shows talking about the issues that are relevant. And I have Dr. Ankit Shah, the young man who I, I really enjoy talking to, another brilliant geopolitical mind. And uh, we will talk about that. So General Saab, Kicking off the discussion with you, and I want to make a very specific mention of what has happened in India with the Supreme Court intervention in Uttarakhand. Another Shahin Bagh coming? What's going on there? Uh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be in the show, and uh, very frankly, I'm honored to be here. Thank you. Now, you know, when we are looking at, uh, you talked about the toolkit. Hmm? Basically, there are there are two levels at which it operates. One is at a very minor level, but when you magnify that minor level a hundred times or a million times, it becomes a cascading effect. And the second thing is on very major issues, which are well anticipated. Now, the function in both is regime change. It's a, it's a very simple word I'm using. It is regime change. And when we are looking at it, I'm, I'll talk specifically from the Indian point of view, the active involved in the region, as well as uh, countries abroad. Now, I just want to, you know, very briefly tell you how the system works, very briefly. About 40 to 50 years ago, I read an article by a reporter. I think he was based in London. And he wrote in the Reader's Digest a very interesting article, How I Created a Crime Wave. So basically, in the city, business was going low and his um, um, editor must have called him up and said, listen, this is not the way to do things. So he went around the police station and found out what crimes are taking place and he started splashing them in the front page. Now, the rival newspapers, they found out, they started splashing it on the front page too. And when it continued over a period of two or three weeks, it looked like as if there's a crime wave there. And then the police inspector came in and, uh, you know, the inspector of police and all that. And then when he carried out a check, he says nothing has changed from the last year or the previous year or a decade earlier. So then, of course, they went to the root of the problem. The editors were told, go cool. And the crime wave abated. Now, just apply those same principles here in India, where you have a very simple issue, any issue. Uh, let, let me go back to the BJP winning the election in 2014. And they wanted to showcase the government as an intolerant government. Now, they used the religious card and they started showcasing attacks on churches. Now, I'm not denying that those attacks on churches took place, but they were very minor incidents. You know, a window pane broken, uh, 200 or 300 rupees stolen from the uh, uh, cash box inside. Very, very minor incidences. But when they started coming in the papers repeatedly, people thought the churches are under attack. So I carried out a check of all that has happened on churches over the last decade and on temples and on mosques. And you come, and I came to the conclusion that there's nothing, this is a normal routine occurrence. 
most of those attacks which took place on churches were done by Christians themselves because that somebody is antagonized for some particular reason. And they were very, very petty offenses. But when you headline them and you splash them in the papers, and then the New York Times picks it up and Washington Post picks it up, and then the BBC starts giving a serial, it appears that India has become intolerant. Now, there was a specific purpose to this toolkit, a very, very specific purpose to defame this government because they just didn't know how to get them out. You spoke about 2020. Now, basically what has happened is from 2014 to 2019, various incidences of this nature started coming up by which the government was shown in a very, very poor light. Uh, or they attempted to show it. But when you actually analyze those incidences, there was nothing out of the ordinary. 2019 was the most critical election, in my view, as far as India is concerned, because finally the West started realizing that we have got somebody in India, a government, which is not going to bow down to our interests. So the, even the West now became interested, even the democracies became interested to say, okay, how do we get them out so that we can get a more pliable government in Delhi? So everybody was looking at their interests. But 2019 was a game changer. They won that election, which is why you see the external affairs minister, whenever he goes abroad and when he talks, he says India is looking after India's interests. Now that has changed the game because we are not playing the game the way the West wanted us to play it, that we, we must look after the West's interest. So we had a neutral, uh, neutral stance as far as Ukraine is concerned. And that got people riled up. On the specific point which, uh, you know, which you mentioned about what has happened in Haldwani, over a period of time, various courts have ruled that the railway land must be uh, freed from encroachments. Now, just in 2020, I think, or 2021, in, uh, uh, in the Aravalis, the land had been encroached upon and the Supreme Court ordered those houses to be uh, demolished. 10,000 houses, 10,000 people. And that time when the people said, please give us compensation because we have paid for this land, the Supreme Court said, encroachers cannot be given compensation. You have been encroached, you must go. Now we come to this particular case where these encroachers are in a railway land. There are about 4,000 houses. And surprisingly, the Supreme Court now starts thinking of human rights and human values. They say, where will those people go? Now, if you are looking at Article 14 of the Constitution of India, which guarantees equal rights, then we must have equal rights as per the law. So if the Supreme Court has ruled in one particular way on encroachment, then why are they ruling in a different way on encroachment? And here too, we saw the elements of a toolkit coming up where people started converging on the streets, old women, uh, some, uh, some groups building langars there, trying to make it out as if, you know, this is going to be a battle to the finish. We saw that happening earlier in Delhi, and they tried to repeat it here. So this is a phenomenon which I think we are going to face. And this is going to be a challenge for the government of India as to how it is to be addressed. Thank you for a wonderful opening that you made in this particular thing. Ankit, coming to you on the piggybacking on General Saab's statement that regime change is the objective of this entire operation. And Prime Minister Modi faces a very different challenge. Whether, and we all know that India needs significant reforms in political, the way that we govern, <clears throat> in economic matters and social changes, whether it's Triple Talaq or Ram Mandir or whatever. The no what I notice is that Mr. Modi will be attacked and is being attacked, which is something which I told in 2020 itself, that if he does an economic change, there will be some group will be unhappy. Not all groups are always happy with the economic policy changes. There will be some group that will be unhappy. Whether he does social changes, again, there will be about something against somebody. And it's even if it is not against something, it will be made as such. And economic changes, obviously. So economic, political, and social changes that Modi will bring about and is trying to bring about will make some group unhappy. The, the toolkit operators are catching on to those gangs and making them as if they are the sufferers and Modi doesn't care for them. 
So he will be attacked as to rise of Hindutva in India. Uh, you know, he doesn't care for the minorities in India or he doesn't care for the certain segments of the economic element. Now, the challenge is this will happen. It happens all the time from Narvada water to shutting down of many industries or protesting against the nuclear power plant. How does the country and the majority respond to that? How, what must happen to make sure that these fissiparous tendencies and elements do not disrupt the majority gain and farmers strike was one such example. So uh, we have understood this fact that, you know, all the tools of democracy will be used as a toolkit, right? right. So that, ex that exploitation, because the, the, the very origin of the democratic format from the Western template where it came from, if you look at the at a, at a macro level, you understand that right from after the Second World War, the way the international busybodies are formulated comes from this victimhood and the demand of rights after the Second World War, which defined this entire structure of what human rights would be, what individual rights would be, which is why you see democracy imposition as one of the tools which is being used by West for regime change in many of the countries worldwide. Now, they have been, unfortunately, they have been very much successful as far as other nations are concerned in terms of bringing regime change with this kind of activities. But as far as India is concerned, I can assure you here that uh, the majority of our masses has a tremendous amount of depth and wisdom in terms of absorbing the shocks of this minor fake protests or this kind of activities that goes on. Now, now the question lies with respect to how, how the governance is going to respond to it. Now, this was very clear that when the case of this particular Haldwani thing, uh, when we're talking about the Indian railways, uh, I should say some 20 to 30% of Indian railway lands or assets are under illegal encroachment and a, and a specific community forms a majority chunk of this illegal encroachment. And that is a fact. Now, every single crime, if you are going to, uh, you know, uh, you know, partition in a way that this is about this community or this is attacking this community, these are all kind of narratives that the anti-India gangs are going to play out in the media, in the information sources, outlets everywhere. Now, how the governance is going to handle this? One thing is clear that when such cases go to uh, courts of law. Uh, now, there is a, 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 a standard which is set across the institutes of law, and that is that if the government has collected taxes on from this illegal encroachers in any point in time in history, then certainly there will become a case of some kind of compensation or some kind of rehabilitation demanded demands considered by the courts of law. Now, this is something which is, a, is going to be a, you know, a state law and order situation along with central law and order situation when it comes to Indian railways, because the railways are going to be a central government domain, right? But when in, in terms of uh, coming, come, when it comes to, you know, handling the compensation or rehabilitation, the state machinery is also going to be involved in terms of if you've collected the local state taxes on this on this uh, illegal encroachments. Now, that is the justice part of it. In terms of how the governance should take it forward, I think that a lot many amount of legal reforms would be required because the old laws with which we are functioning, and let me tell you, since 1947, we are being purposely given a punctured railway engine. This constitution document is a punctured railway engine before our train took off. And they ensured that you are never going to get the numerical strength to amend it. This was, this was the arrangement which was set by whoever the powers in B who uh, did these deals to, uh, you know, get this kind of independence credit and become prime minister and whatnot. I, we don't know what kind of uh, deals went uh, behind the curtains. But certainly this particular document, constitution document, is, is a punctured engine which was given to India. And it was purposely formulated in a fashion 
that you are not going to be able to make fast amendments until you cross a certain number in Rajya Sabha, Lok Sabha and whatnot. And, and that, that ensures that you're never going to uh, move ahead in terms of uh, competing with the Western world, right? So we have to understand that this document needs to be either, you know, drafted from, I mean, drafted afresh from the indigenous viewpoint, or we just get trapped in this cycle of amending it again and again and again and waiting for the right time to come, waiting for the right numbers to come. And that's how this entire cycle runs. And we have to understand that the, that the aspirations of this young generation is much more. We expect much more from the governance. This kind of illegal encroachments is not the way forward. Uh, the young generation wants India ahead, right? So this is where the governance need to now look at because a lot many of Supreme Court judgments or the bodies of law, they themselves are under question in terms of appointments because their own appointment procedure is under question with the, uh, you know, the collegium system which they have. So that is another pending reform of their own for the body itself, right? We all know the corruption that goes into the collegium system of appointment of the judges, right? So. There are fundamental changes. I mean, India is right now in 1946 in terms of defining the structure of institutions that uh, the natives need, the indigenous people need of this country. Because when we talk about the word Swatantra, we mean self-governance. And self-governance cannot be achieved until you have your the sanctity of the institutions which need to serve the people, right? So we are in 1946 in terms of the institutional framework that we simply cut, copy, pasted from the from the Western formats and the templates. So until we bring this change, we will be trapped in this loop of discussing and solving, discussing and solving, doing patchwork here and there in that corner, in this corner, in that corner. I don't think this is going to work. The document needs to be revisited thoroughly. How will that happen? particularly when the constitutional amendments have become very difficult to do and we have so many parties, so that is never going to happen. General Saab, you are a soldier, you are a thinker, you, have, you are battle-tested, you know the battle rules. The question arises here, and I'm always driven by solution. We can talk about, we understand the issue and the challenges. One of the things that he talked about, and particularly Haldwani incident, is the fact that encroachment always happens by a certain section of people. And they are a particular vote bank. We are living in a time and an era where, unfortunately, you name the particular group and you are immediately branded as phobic and you know, attacked as you, know, you are a hater, which we are not. But we are asking a question as a fundamental right. How does one handle that scenario? Because this is this this is at the root of our entire gameplay. It happens in the US, it happens everywhere else. But in the Indian context and the American context, how do you see it shape up? You see, uh, I have studied this phenomenon. Um, I've been doing it now for about 20 to 25 years. Earlier, I was not, uh, most of the time while in service, uh, it didn't really interest me, you know, you're just getting on with your job. Uh, but for the last 10 years or so before I retired, um, I started looking into it. And now for the last 12 years post-retirement, I've also been looking into it. Fundamentally, from my own studies, and I've studied this very deeply, there was an ecosystem created within the country, which we call the left liberal ecosystem. In Delhi, it's also called the Lutians system. Now, what these people did was they accumulated power amongst themselves uh, in people, you know, who were in the arts, in culture, etc., etc., uh, in the literary world, in the political world, in the social world, right? And they wrote down a particular history of India, right? And when you see that history of India, there was huge distortions which have come in, but nobody could challenge it because the alternate voice was not allowed to be heard within our universities. Now that became the first challenge. The school books which we had were inherited from the British and post, post independence, we didn't do, uh, you know, we haven't really done much to decolonize, to use the word, the Indian mind. 
to put to put, give you one small example when i was in school uh, i studied in a very uh, public school i studied in sherwood in our time i'm talking about the 50s and the early 60s the history which i was taught was that robert clive was a great man and the indian whom he subjugated deserved to be subjugated you see and you know so william bentick became the reformers um, lord wellesley everybody all of them were great people the people who were the scum were the local people of india and then you come to that african proverb you know that very great african proverb which says until the their own historian the will always glorify the hunter i would so, i would ask you to repeat that african saying because your voice broke at the same time so please repeat right. that uh, you see this african proverb states until the lions get their own historian the history of the hunt will always favor the hunter now it's a very important point who writes that history who is setting the syllabus who is talking in the schools what has happened post 20 uh, you know the first time when atal bihari vajpayee became the prime minister he tried to change it but he didn't have a majority he he, he was dependent on others but when narendra modi got the majority in 2014 that was the first time the decolonization of the mind the process of decolonization of the mind started the most critical election as i told you early in my opening remarks was 2019 people are saying it's 2024 no it is 2019 because that has given a continuity of 10 years and 2024 will be the second most important election what really what is really required is decolonizing the might you know creating that alternative narrative uh, i'm not saying the left narrative cannot go please use that narrative but there must be a right narrative also you see have both views both must be heard but earlier one view was suppressed you could not you could not have an opinion which was not agreeable to the left i have always called this left liberal system totally fascist totally fascist because they accept no view other than their own but when i when you look today at the right eco, right wing ecosystem in india it is quite prepared to listen to all sides so the democratic institution today the one which we call open which is liberal is the right wing which they are calling fascist but the actual fascist they are used terminologies to demonize the other so i think what is required really is narrative building we have to shape the narrative and if you want to get rid of these toolkits i think it is very important to anticipate what is going to happen now once you anticipate what's going to happen you can be prepared get your data ready get your facts ready and start projecting them onto the screens well before anybody can attack you i am very surprised very frankly <coughs> i beg your pardon i'm very surprised frankly that in this republic day parade there are no major disturbances taking place in delhi and then i analyze the reason why a few months back a large number of arrests of the pfi have taken place they were the toolkit which was supposed to be used and they were it was anticipated they were going to create trouble and they have been sorted out just before they could carry out very major terrorist attacks and other activities now that is a plus but when all these pluses you know the ones which have been anticipated and sorted out they don't come into the public eye because nothing has happened so only when things go wrong will things come into the public eye i think the government is working on it but it is going to be a very difficult piece of work because we have people in the media some of them who have lost the power which they earlier had there were there were there were you know very senior journalists who could walk into the prime minister's office many of them knew the cabinet changes which are to take place before the concerned ministers themselves all that is history post 2014 nobody knows so people can guess people can anticipate but nobody knows who is going to be the president of india nobody knew it is going to be uh, the, the present president when president kovind was made that madam murmu uh, president murmu we didn't know when president kovind was made nobody knew there was no hint of a rumor so that element is something that people don't like people who were in power earlier they were the power brokers 
the power brokers have been smashed. But has Lutyen's Delhi been smashed? No, they're still very active. Has the left ecosystem been smashed? No. So it is going to be an uphill battle. But I think we have got a very strong ecosystem now uh, on the other side, which, can, which is an alternate voice. So today, while that alternate voice may not be as strong as the left ecosystem, it is still a very powerful voice, which, which did not exist earlier. It didn't exist. Now it exists. And I think that is the change which is coming about, which is, which is why, in my view, the government now, from now onwards, will be in a better position to handle these situations. Thank you. Thank you. And that's a very important point. The battle will be uphill. Hey, we won the Kargil climbing a impossible yeah. mountain. So, hey, we can do that. The question is, as President Barack Obama said, we can. Yes, we can. So we can. The question is, when? But you made a very interesting observation because <clears throat> hearing you, I went back into my school days, you know, that Robert Clive and the British were so great for India. Even, even some of the Congress people still talk about that uh, oh, British gave us the railways, the British gave us the English language, and we must be grateful to them. But the point of the matter is that India was a giant country, one of the greatest of, uh, you know, with 26 or 28 percent of the global trade without English. That's important for people to, of India to know. But taking your point <clears throat> that the changes in the universities and colleges, the education, the narrative, that takes time to happen. So Ankit, you belong to the next generation of education, uh, people who have gone through the college and education. Have you seen any change? And are you seeing uh, that what changes that need to be brought about? Because I remember there was one Mishraji from London who had on this Jaipur dialogue in a conversation with Sanjay Dixit and myself, had think, I think it was him, who said the left is no longer in, in, interested in, in catching power or taking power because they have already infiltrated and captured the minds and the universities and the narrative. They have. It is global. It's everywhere. Even in America, the woke culture is all about socialism. Socialism is being talked about. Tell us from your young man's perspective, how is the how the change in the universities and the youth must change? Because India, a lot for, for many years, was being talked about the beneficiary of the demographic dividend. Because if the government doesn't encash on the dividend, that demographic dividend will become a demographic burden in not too soon a future. Your thoughts on that? So I would like to take you a little back uh, sure. during the British rule, right? Okay. So the yeah, so the uh, around 1820s, the population of this country started realizing that the Britishers are trying to impose a classroom model on this country. Uh, after the introduction of the Indian Penal Code, 1850s, uh, it was it became very clear that the Penal Code started being used to destroy the Gurukul education system. And by the time it was 1905, a huge chunk of Indian population actually fought and died to stop the classroom model of the British education system. So, and the Britishers were very keen to impose this classroom model on all its colonies, particularly because it wanted a bunch of slaves coming out of this classroom model who would not question anything, won't think about independence, won't pose challenges to the British rulers, and they will have a consistent supply of labor, cheap labor, for their industrialization factories which they had established. So this, this was the model root cause with which the classroom system got birth. And it was you know, implemented on all colonies of the world, which is why we have the classrooms today. And, and the ancient Gurukuls are no more visible, though we see some offshoots here and there of some kind of uh, revival uh, started by some of the communities. Uh, but the entire chunk of modern education, which the ancient India had in terms of university campuses under Mandir campuses, right? So the mm. universities were inside Mandir campuses. I mean, we can literally measure the depreciation and degradation of our civilization from, you know, university being 
in the mandir campuses to now a small mandir uh, demo mandir in the university so that's that's a measurement of how much degradation the civilization has seen under the colonial rule now we need to understand that despite the fact that this classroom model was imposed on all the colonies include including india the ancient india wisdom still prevails among the population uh, about 60 to 70% of our population still remains with the self employment and the enterprising model which was not the output expected by the western template of the classrooms right they expect a direct human trafficking of humans from classrooms to jobs because their objective was to reduce a perpetually rich enterprising economy into a jobber based dependent economic structure because that is how they viewed humans as a unit of labor for the few crony capitalists who would run the entire world and that is how the extreme capitalism has resulted in the downgradation of the western economies as well as we see these days now when you talk about the wrong history uh, we are we have this news recent news that uh, uh, we are going to have a corrected version of history under the nep and one of the uh, one of the important elements of nep talks about going away from english language or should i rather put as more stress on our regional languages indian languages and another element which is important is about the skills based electives which the students can now select now when this changes come on ground trickle down to the last uh, strata of our society and the young generation that is the point in time we will uh, start will be able to see the changes that would come in terms of how the economy is then taken forward away from the service sector jobs and that kind of thing but in terms of the recent uh, news of foreign universities starting to uh, you know establishing campuses over here in india that's the news which has come wherein you know harvard and oxford and all of those ugc has come out with a draft whereby they can not just establish campuses over here but they can also bring their own assessment system as well now i am very hopeful with these campuses coming to india particularly because it it reminds me of something like east india company in a reverse fashion but this time because this will be the time when you know the fiat dollar would be going which had sponsored a lot many of unrequired service sector jobs which would have been wrapped up by that time so the question would be asked how far this uh, the british classroom model of trapping humans in in, a, in within four walls for 20 years how far that makes sense so when that question comes when this campuses would be here and when by that time you know our corrected history version would be out and the nep first lot of young students would be out who would be seeking higher education admissions i think that will be the point in time when the reverse east india company will thing will happen and we will be will be able to export what our sanatan economics model was to the rest of the world i sincerely hope that when the foreign universities are allowed to set up they don't teach liberal arts liberal uh, theologies that they that, that has causing problem and as uh, mr rajiv malhotra has often talked about and i hold the same view let's learn from the west about the technology the stem area and that's where harvard is great and other universities are great in terms of taking advantage of the actual thinking not the liberal arts general saab i'm coming back to you on your other statement that you made about the the behavioral pattern of the left liberal gang so, you know le le left liberal ecosystem to put it mildly the one of the tools they use of democratic practices is the abuse of freedom and accuse you and i of what they exactly do they call us fascists while they are the actual fascists the external affairs minister when he in 2019 our post 2019 election had made a statement that you will see a muscular foreign policy response from india he made that statement and tell me one thing 
the, the, the entire diplomatic force, the bureaucratic system, which was trained in the British era system of developmental part or administrative part, how will they be trained quickly to develop the muscular language required? And nobody can understand that better than a general himself. So what kind of a training is required to have that muscular approach? He is showing it. And many people in the US are blaming him that he is a bureaucrat, not a politician. He doesn't politic well because he is destroying the India's image elsewhere. In reality, he is doing very well to project India's image. So your thoughts on this? Actually, um, as far as the external affairs minister is concerned, I want to start with him, uh, Mr. Jay Shankar. Uh, I think he, okay, he was a bureaucrat, he was a diplomat, he was our foreign secretary. But I think he has been, perhaps, you know, he's been magnificent as a politician, right? Uh, it, it, is some, it is not an accident that the prime minister chose him, right? Picked him out and put him as the foreign minister. It is not an accident because this man has the vision to look ahead. And that vision is matching with what the prime minister's vision is. In fact, you know, I want to make a statement which may be, uh, which may be contested. Uh, of any, I mean, anything which I say can be contested. Uh, there's no problem in that. We are a democracy. <laughs> we are a democracy. You see, one of, the, one of the problems I think which we are facing in our administrative structures is that the bureaucrats cannot think at the same pace as the Prime Minister of India. You see, his vision is so large. Uh, and uh, very frankly, even when I started looking at it, you know, uh, I, I, I felt that he's going overboard. And suddenly I realized, no, I'm slow. So he is, he is looking at a different India and he's trying to get you there. Now the bureaucrats really have to measure up. But I think a change is coming. And I want to give you a very small example uh, in a lecture with my foundation, India Foundation, we were having for a group of people. And we had one of the economists, a very, uh, very uh, important person speaking. Uh, and the heading which we had given them, uh, this was three years ago, getting to a $5 trillion economy. And do you know how he starts the talk? He said, ladies and gentlemen, I'm not going to talk about a $5 trillion economy. We are going to get there. It's, it is irrelevant. I'm going to tell you how we can reach $10 trillion. No, you see, that was the time when people were even scared to talk of five trillion. That thinking has changed within quite a few people. Now you're talking of 10 trillion. And uh, I can assure you, five to 10 years from now, when Ankit is a senior person and all that, he's going to say they only spoke of 10 trillion. They should have spoken of 50 trillion. That is the, you see, the India is changing. That is the change which I'm seeing. Now, what do we need to do? I think as far as the administrative uh, structures are concerned, they require a tremendous vamping up. It is not just our history which, uh, which was distorted. We inherited a British model of administration. And in the British model, uh, the, uh, it was an accepted fact that if there was a deputy commissioner, or a collector or whatever these people were called, he was supposed to make his money from the people. He was supposed to enrich himself from them. The very root of corruption really came in from there. You know, that idea with Gandhi was propagating of the villages, self thing and, you know, self-service and all that. That was absent in our administrative structures right from 1947 when we got independence. So really what had happened was the white man left, the brown man came and sat in his chair and continued the same way. That is why that decolonization of the mind uh, uh, which Rajiji also talks about. It's a very, the snakes in the Ganga. You know, it is very well put. There are snakes in the Ganga. And this is the problem. You know, this, this the problem is really here. These are the people who are losing power now. The people who felt entitled that, okay, I am so-and-so, I'm a great journalist. You know, so whenever I come, people should open the door for me. Or I'm so-and-so, you know, uh, I'm an ex-minister, I'm ex-this. Uh, can you beat, can you believe like the chief minister, the former chief minister of Jammu and Kashmir, they were still holding on to their palatial bungalows. I mean, he's no more the chief minister. He, they are not entitled, but yet they're holding on. Now they have been removed. So a whole lot of this, this entire ecosystem, they were 
sitting on prime property in Delhi and elsewhere. And it took Narendra Modi to get them out. The red, that you know, that culture of the of the Lal Bhatti, you know, that the, 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 the status symbol. To remove that, Narendra Modi very simply said, it goes off from my car. You know, everybody else had to follow suit. I think that is the decolonization which is required to tell people, you know, I, I have a maid in my house, she can have tea with me, I have no problems. In America, that system is there, that system of equality. It is not there in India. We still think of people as high and low just because our economic levels are different. So it is going to take time, but we have people now um, who are actually working towards that. On the diplomatic front, I think it was Susma Suraj who laid the foundation of changing the character of our diplomacy. And you see those changes uh, which have taken place in Susma Suraj's five years and carried forward brilliantly by the present external affairs minister. Obviously, it was a, it was a prime minister's uh, uh, vision that, that we accept, but it was executed by these two people. And today, when you go abroad, like I have relatives living abroad. When I go to Singapore, uh, my daughter tells me, she says, the respect which we get as Indians, we have not seen that earlier. So that change has taken place. While people may crib about India and our, uh, you know, our uh, response as far as uh, the Ukraine crisis was concerned, but I think in the heart of hearts, they understand that what we are saying is right. Because when that crisis took place, I had to speak up for Russia, not because I'm pro-Russia. I will criticize Russia elsewhere. But on this particular issue, I said, this is not my war. This is somebody else's war. It's a European war. Why should I get involved in it? Why should I buy expensive oil to spite some, some particular country and to favor somebody else? It doesn't make sense to me. And the West is not doing it. So when we're looking at these things, I think now in the thinking circles, in India's administration, in India's diplomacy, that this is what has come in now. Indian interests must come first. And that had been subordinated for a very long time to external agencies. I think that change we are, going to, we are seeing now. Uh, 2024 is going to be a very important election because once the present government wins that, that 15-year stretch which we have got from 2014 to 2029 will make the situation irreversible. That means India will be for Indians, for the grassroots Indians. And when people start cribbing that, okay, this government is not doing, you know, for the minority, etc., etc., and they play the Muslim card, I can assure you that then, you know, things like uh, cheap housing or that free gas, etc., etc., across the board, it has been distributed across the board. And the worst critics of the government from the left, they have not been able to say that there has been any dis any discrimination on economic grounds. So the money has been equally distributed across the board. And now what we are asking for is laws must be equally applied. You cannot discriminate against the majority community just because it is the majority. You have to treat all communities alike because we are a democracy and we are a secular democracy. A secular democracy does not mean that you go and shoot the majority community and say, okay, we will build up the minorities. That's not the way it works. And when we talk of the minority, we are only talking about the Muslims. Not the Sikhs, not the Christians, not the Parsis, the real minorities, because all of them are doing well. So I think this mindset needs to change. And hopefully uh, the change has started. I hope this, you know, we, it accelerates. It really needs to accelerate and make a change because with that, it is beneficial to the Muslim community. They will rise. They have been kept back by the clerics. So I think within the Muslim community, they've got to tell the clerics not this way. We are Indians and we will rise together. Over to you. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, uh, Ankit, I'll come to you with two thoughts. You know, one was that General Saab said that talking about India being a five trillion economy and the gentleman said, why five trillion? We are going to become five. We'll talk about ten. Right. And then he also said that Ankit's generation will say, hey, they were far low in their estimate of ten. We should have talked about some other number bigger number. But there is a particular group of people in the United States who are of the opinion that unless and until India does something drastic to shift from five to five trillion dollar, they will not become a 10 trillion. It's a pipe dream. Look at Japan. 
Japan could not grow beyond 5 trillion. Everybody anticipated it will grow. So as a geopolitical analyst, Japan got stuck at five, and we know what is happening in Japan. What must, as a risk analyst, what must not happen? What must the government not let happen so that the incessant economic growth model of India, the potential India has to become five to trend in an accelerated pace? The second question is non-related to that, but should I miss it? I'm asking right now, and both of you, I would like to say about Ukraine. In my thought, I always believed that, that the entire global challenge that the world is facing in various parts of the flashpoints in the world are a legacy of a colonial rule. All the flashpoints in the world. And Europeans are very clever that they indulge in their own territorial megalomaniac, emotional, territorial adjustments, and they have a war within themselves. And they somehow make it a global phenomenon. You know, Ukraine was a global food problem. Germany and, uh, you know, Nazi and the rest of the non-Nazi clash was a world war. It was world war because Indian soldiers, as a colonial power, fought the war on behalf of their rulers. So it became a world war for no reason at all. Yes, Japan was involved, but that was a different matter altogether. Tell us about these two issues. And General Saab, I'll come back to you on the same matters, is to how does India isolate itself? Can we live in an isolated thought process in a remarkably interconnected world today? Ankit, you go. So uh, Vibhutiji, on this question of 5 trillion and 10 trillion, uh, we're talking about in in dollar terms, I would like to bring <laughs> your attention. Yeah. I'd like to bring to your attention uh, that post uh, October 2022 National Congress in China, post completion of that, the entire Politburo in the Chinese Communist Party has turned anti-exports. And, and the last numbers that they publicly issued the reports that they give in terms of what exports and imports they do, they shifted it in yuan terms. Now, this is not the only place in the world which has, which has changed to give reports or numbers in their national currency terms. United Arab Emirates laid out a 10-year plan for their economic progress until 2033, which coincides with the completion of central government in India, the 2029 term as well. They also gave out those numbers in dirhams, which is their national currency. This is the shift which is happening. About 30 to 35 nations have already lined up for UPI rupee cards. And that's and the shift that is going to happen from the Western SWIFT payment mechanism. And what is going to happen next? I mean, the news has come out today. India has called 120 nations under a summit titled as the voice of global south this is the news just one hour back okay right the voice of global south is the title given to the summit now and then there are news that several leaders are coming obviously some from the indian subcontinent are visiting this sri lanka bangladesh and uh, the asean countries so this all has not suddenly happened we have to realize, realize what happened in 2022. In 2022, it was the first time Xi Jinping, Vladimir Putin, and Narendra Modi, all three leaders gave a miss to the United Nations General Assembly event. We got to record this somewhere. It's not a normal event. So what they did was they downgraded it to the foreign minister's level. And with, and with the declaration of this voice of Global South, Global mm -hmm. South is a terminology which is used to exclude the West, frankly speaking. Yeah. Right. So when we say, when we look at all this together, what it comes to is that the West did a big mistake by not taking India on board on the United Nations Security Council. That was a big mistake by the West. And now what is going to happen further is India, Russia and China are going to become a major format 
in terms of geopolitics, they will certainly sit together and devise out how the de-dollarized world is going to function, which means that all the valuations which you talked about 5 trillion and 10 trillion in dollar terms, those valuations are, go are going to undergo a big flip which means that the manufacturing and the enterprising and the farming sectors in all the economies of the world, the real producers, which is Asia and the Gulf, which sells energy majorly, the valuations of these economies are going to flip, flip in the sense you won't be able to give a number in, the, in a fiat dollar terms, wherein the Gulf and Asia will say, hey, we are not going to take a fiat dollar or a fiat euro as a payment for what we are selling. So these are these are big changes which are, which are coming. And this is not something which is the West is going to like, particularly because, uh, you know, it's just clearly excludes them out of this equation of, uh, of having any kind of relevance. Now, this takes me to the technology topic, which uh, S. Jay Shankar recently pointed out uh, that the West model has fallen and technology is going to have a big role into that. So what he was hinting towards this is uh, that, the, that, the, that the Western influence in terms of, you know, imposing the Western templates with these international bodies, which is UN, World Bank and the IMF is going, that their fate is going to hang, particularly because a renewed negotiation will begin some months from now, I'm very sure, negotiations will begin on how a fiat currency and a pegged currency will be able to trade with each other. And what is the role going forward in terms of private crypto regulations, if that is going to be taken as some kind of a legal tender of money or not, and what is the way forward. So until these negotiations close in a fairly decisive manner, the fate of all the unipolar dollar-led bodies are going to hang. <laughs> they are going to be in question, frankly speaking. And especially when you don't have India on board in the United Nations Security Council, there is a cooling period of six years, which means we are not even a non-permanent United Nations Security Council member until 2028. I don't know how these bodies are going to function. I mean, this is this is not the government in sitting in Delhi which is uh, the, mo the, the modern autonomous Janapada structure, which could not consolidate hard, hard power in Delhi. And, the, and we failed against the invaders because of that. This is, this is a nation state primitive concept government with tremendous amount of consolidation of hard power in Delhi and the young population waking up to the soft power. So I don't think this is the government which the West should meddle in any case, right? So what I see in terms of leadership going forward is, especially with the news of this Global South terminology, voice of Global South terminology for this summit, I believe that India, Russia, and China are moving towards clearly demarcating their spheres of influence, moving towards a pegged currency, which is very obvious, BRICS plus. And that is how the valuations of all the economies are going to flip. The, the production, the manufacturing, the real commodities, the farming, the precious metals, the logistics, the exports. These, these, these are the sectors which are going to boom like anything because these were artificially suppressed with the fiat dollar uh, imposition on the board. So going forward, these are the changes which are coming. And I particularly believe Ukraine conflict is a prime example of how the United States military is indirectly signaling to the world that we are not going to fight a war with a nuclear power for saving a fiat dollar, which, which has already created a mountain of debt, which has now become unsolvable domestically back home. Right. So I do believe that a faction of United States deep state is aligned on this on this objective of killing the fiat currency format, which is why you also see. Uh, that the private cryptos are failing because before the fiat currencies formula go, they are going to kill the private cryptos in the process because that's going to happen first, right? So this this is this is the change which we are looking forward to. Brilliant. I mean, this is a this is a remarkable analysis, and 
based on what is happening around us. So I'm aware of quite a few things that you have said. Time is always short for, uh, you know, time is always short for moments like this. We will have to have many more conversations and we will do. But I want to come to you, Janatab, on this one. Is the European fancy, I call them, they play their melodrama of territorial adjustments and they make it somewhere along the line a global issue. Again, the toolkit begins to get into operation. Can you imagine that for the first ever time in US Congress history, Ukrainian flag was displayed in the House, in the joint session of the Senate and Congress. It never happened before. So when we allow the emotion take over the rational part of the conversation, the things go crazy. How do you see this play out? Because in this particular time, as we see it, uh, things are going out of control. One of the critical tools of democracy is freedom. And I see freedom being abused. And as a definition of poison is, anything becomes a poison when it is used in excess. Do you see democracy's tool of freedom being abused so much so that it's creating an aversion as a fascist tool? Yes, I think this uh, the tool is being abused. But uh, there is a great thing about democracies. Uh, there are self-connecting mechanisms within the system. So things will go bad, but at some point of time, uh, you know, they can correct themselves, hopefully. Uh, it is really a question of leadership. But getting back as far as Ukraine is concerned, you see, this was an unnecessary war. And uh, I'm surprised because uh, for the last uh, eight to 10 months, I've been coming on various TV shows on that. And they keep telling me such, you know, so many things have happened and bombing is taking place. And I tell them, listen, over the last one week, five people have died or six people have died. Come on, that is not a, that is not a world war going on. Right. Uh, I'm not saying that people should die, but these are made low scale, low, uh, low scale actions which are taking place there. And a, a particular status quo has now been reached, which, which is not going to change. Neither America can change it, nor the Ukrainians. So I think Russia is quite comfortable with what, what it has taken and it will be hold, able to hold on to it. There was no business for NATO to survive after the Soviet Union had broken up. Russia could have been incorporated into the European Union. They didn't do that. So, you know, people have been playing their own games. And uh, um, we are talking about big business. We are talking about, uh, you know, the uh, the defense sector. Uh, you know, the people who have to sell the armaments and all that. Uh, they, these are all big players. They, they are playing their own games. And uh, the Ukrainians have been used as uh, fodder. So I think uh, India has very rightly stayed out of it. But there are just one or two very quick points I want to give. You know, as far as the narrative is concerned in India, I am seeing now the voices which were part of the Muslim community were, were, were basically the clerics. Now women have started speaking up. That is going to be a very major change. And the more women speak up from all sections of society, the change will come because they are the ones who have been subjugated. Uh, the history syllabuses, the, uh, and the other syllabuses, they are undergoing a change. But more importantly, the younger generation, you know, not uh, Ankit is slightly senior to the younger generation now. <laughs> so I'm talking about the generation which is, say, uh, 18 to 20 years old. You know, the chap just getting into college and in that college years. They have a totally different vision of life. So massive changes are going to come. And I think the politicians, if they don't understand this, they, are, they, will, they will get defeated every time. Narendra Modi has understood it. He's got the pulse of the youth. The other people are still in that divide mode, you know, divide the Hindu vote, get the Muslim vote, win the elections. That formula is dead. It's not going to work. So people require a new narrative. And uh, hopefully uh, India is on the right path as far as the narrative is concerned. But as you said in your opening remarks, it is an uphill battle. But I am quite sanguine. It's an uphill battle that we will win. Thank you very much. Your time is coming to an end. In my closing, I would add only two things. We have known about Mahabharat and Ramayan. Dharmic war has to be fought. And the wars are never easy to win. In the modern part of it, I shared with some, some of my American friends that even Harry Potter, a young boy, had to fight Voldemort 
And so many sacrifices were to be made. The battle, the destruction of Horcruxes was part of the game. They understood it very quickly, what dharmic means in this case. And I all gave them a second example was how Fredo, Frodo Baggins destroyed the ring with the help of Sam. Sam uh, Frodo destroyed with the help of Sam. Point is very simple. And so many people fought for that. Even, even Frodo Baggins, to, for destruction of ring, he was still tempted not to destroy it. But eventually it happened. So the battle, uphill battles are always to be won. They are won. The Second World War was won by the Dharmic group of people. My point is very simple. It has to be fought. And it has to be, the narrative has to be crushed. The bogus narratives have to be crushed. And we have to protect democracy by making sure that those who are abusing it are called out and exposed. With these thoughts, I thank you viewers for watching. Like, subscribe, and share our channel because we are bringing you narratives which many people do not want to talk. I'm particularly happy that media also has begun. The law of physics, the third, third law of physics, has begun to eventually take off. So, Major Dhruv Saab, thank you very much for joining today. Ankit, great pleasure. Thank you very much, viewers. We end our day. Have a great weekend and talk to you next week again. Thank you. Nice. We have been on throughout, throughout the day today. <laughs> uh, I was on Saturday.